Morning, church. What well, can take away our hallelujah? Hallelujah is, simply means praise Yahweh. Yahweh is um, the name by which God reveals himself in the Old Testament. So praise Yahweh. So often we think hallelujah is a throwaway word, some sort of religious word. But what can take away our praise of Yahweh? This morning we, um, we meet a man whose wealth, his wealth, takes away his opportunity to praise Yahweh. You can turn to Luke 18 if, in, in your copy of the scripture. Is this working? Testing, one, two. Does it sound good? All right. Turn to Luke 18, follow along as I read our passage. Luke, in his gospel, uh, pairs or he couplets uh, stories, and it appears he does so um, to help us understand the poles, the spiritual dichotomies, the, the options, as it were, um, in our journey of faith. For example, he, in Luke's Christmas narrative, and only in Luke's Christmas narrative, there are two birth announcements. Zechariah receives a birth announcement from Gabriel that John the Baptist will be born, and then Mary receives a birth announcement that Jesus will be born. Um, and they have two very different responses to the birth announcement. And then there's the couplet or the pairing of Martha, who is easily distracted by all that needs to get done in life. Very suburban, Martha is. Distracted by all the busyness. And then the polar opposite is her sister Mary, who contentedly sits at Jesus' feet and learns from the Savior. And then there is the arrogant Pharisee who enters the temple and thanks God that he's not like any of these other sinners. Coupled with or compared to the humble tax collector who beats his chest and cries out for mercy to God. And then of course there are the two thieves on the cross, one unrepentant to the point of death, one repentant just before he dies. And Luke seems to couple these folks so that we are forced to assess how will we respond as we meet Jesus and interact with him? Will we, like Zechariah, respond with doubt? Or like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who responds in faith to, to Gabriel's announcement of the coming birth? Or will we, like Martha, get distracted by all that there is in life to get done? Or will we, like Mary, sit at Jesus' feet? Just this week, it occurred to me as I'm talking to God and making my way through the week, God's not in a hurry. He can't be in a hurry. Definitionally, God can't be in a hurry because He's orchestrating all things. He's sovereignly intending all details in my life, in our lives. He's not in a hurry. I am so often in a hurry, and I think it commendable. This week I was wondering if, and it's often the case, I know that I'm out front of God saying, hurry up, catch up. We'll be like Martha or Mary. Will we be like in prayer, and we may not say this, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these other sinners, 
Or will we be humble in prayer and, and cast ourselves upon the one who cares for us, like the tax collector? Will we be repentant or unrepentant? This morning in, in uh, Luke, we meet with another coupling. This morning's passage presents another dichotomy. And the question on the table appears to be, will we be like children? Little children in our dependence upon God, in our need for salvation, or will we be very adult-like, self-reliant, accomplished, credentialed, disciplined in our pursuit to merit salvation? We'll be in Luke 18. Follow along as I read. And as you're turning there, this, this passage follows directly on the heels of John's passage last week, uh, Pastor John preached that we must enter the kingdom as little children. We must be childlike in order to enter God's kingdom. This week we get a tangible example of why that is the case. Why we must be childlike. As Jesus interacts with an adult who is highly credentialed, highly competent, full of social influence and biblical morality. This guy is really moral and something steals his hallelujah because he's unwilling to depend upon God ultimately. He wants to be self-reliant and we're forced to look, decide who we will be, children or adults. As I make my way, as we make our way through this passage, I'm gonna highlight some things that stand out to me. We're in Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. We'll just take the first couple verses here, make our way through. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered him, no one is good except God alone. I love this. Love it, love it, love it. Scholars tell us that the title of certain rulers aimed most likely at describing a local synagogue leader. Considering that Jesus had just finished saying the verse prior to 18, verse 17, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We must wonder if this ruler is not worried about his chances of entering the kingdom of God. If a distinguishing mark of children is their dependence on others to provide for them, their relative immaturity, right? That's a child. Relative immaturity, particularly in matters of faith, and in the first century, children were socially marginalized. Here in 21st century, we idolize our children if we're not careful. But in the first century, out of sight, out of mind, that was kind of the ancient world's posture towards children. You can understand why this ruler might be unnerved by the declaration, you've got to be childlike to enter the kingdom of God. He is, after all, everything that a child is not. As a ruler, right? He's a ruler. He has social influence. He has authority. He has responsibility. In a few verses, we'll learn that he's spiritually disciplined. He's diligent to keep God's commands. He was in almost every respect the opposite, remember the dichotomies of Luke, he's the opposite of a child, the epitome of adulthood. Given this reality, 
What would it mean for him to enter the kingdom of God? Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do? As a highly credentialed, highly competent, influential, biblically moral, fully adult male, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? The first thing we might note is that children really don't do much, right? That's a great thing about being a child, right? <laughs> you don't have to do much. In point of fact, things are done for you. Yet this ruler's response to Jesus' declaration about how children enter the kingdom is, what must I do? He still is not getting it. To enter the kingdom of God, something must be done for us. Something must be done for us. The greeting of good teacher was a fairly common cultural greeting in that period, conveying uh, respect and honor that are due Jesus as a beloved rabbi. At the same time, although a common greeting, this is not a throwaway greeting. We say in our, in our day, right, hello, how you doing? We don't really expect anybody to say, I'm not doing well. This week, a couple times, somebody asked me, how you doing? I said, I'm happy. I'm happy today. Interesting response, right? They, they gave me, oh, right? So this isn't a throwaway statement. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, Mark's gospel, he conveys the exact same interaction between Jesus and a ruler. Mark tells us the guy's on his knees. He comes to Jesus, falls on his knees, and says, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do? He makes this request from his knees. So although a common greeting, good teacher, it's clear it's not a throwaway for this man. He's deeply sincere. He really wants to know rulers don't go to their knees, right, for just any reason. Rulers stand up straight. This is an urgent matter to him as he asks Jesus about eternal life. At the same time, Jesus took what was meant to be a common, albeit sincere, greeting, and he, he turns it in an opportunity to make a point. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This declaration that only God is good seems aimed at provoking some insight on the ruler who's on his knees seeking eternal life. Jesus is trying to make a point. In other words, I know that you recognize me as a wise teacher. I know that you think I have insight, that I'm able to open the scriptures to you and give you understanding. But do you recognize me as God? When you say to me, good teacher, do you see in me the, the only good being? Do you see that I am God alone? No one is good but God. Are you calling me God? Y'all follow this? Jesus is trying to open his mind. No one's good but God. Why do you call me good? Do you see me as God? Do you know that I'm God? I know you think I'm wise. I'll open the scripture to you. I'll give you understanding. But do you actually see me as, as God? Why do you suppose that Jesus took this opportunity to answer in this way? 
Why do you call me good? Why do you think he stepped outside the norm of polite conversation? The man says, good teacher. The culturally appropriate response would have been, most honored and good sir. Something along those lines. So the man comes to him, falls on his knees. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would have expected to hear from Jesus, most honored and good sir, here's what you got to do. But that's not where Jesus goes with this. Not at all where Jesus goes. Remember, the man on his knees is a ruler. He's influential. We'll learn that he's highly moral in a minute. He's disciplined. He's accomplished. What do you say to a man that's highly credentialed, or to an adult rather, what do you say to an adult who's highly credentialed, a person of social influence, disciplined, mature, who wants eternal life? We meet them all the time. That is suburbia. We meet highly credentialed, highly competent folks, disciplined folks, moral folks, many of whom are interested in eternal life. What do we say to them? What do we offer them? It's very different when someone who's immoral asks, who's not credentialed, who's not competent. To those people, Jesus offered forgiveness and grace and comfort. I'm picturing the woman at the well. I'll give you waters that well up, never run dry. You know what Jesus offered this man? The mirror of the law. Verse 20 and 21. He didn't praise his morality. He didn't placate his pangs of conscience. Even highly moral folks have pangs of conscience. He didn't raise him up off his knees that we know of and speak to him directly, man to man. You're a ruler, I'm a person of influence. No, that's not what he did. Jesus holds up the law. You know the commands. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Anybody feeling overwhelmed at the moment? We should. All these I've kept since I was a boy. To those who thought they were good, to those who thought they were capable of meriting eternal life, to those who had character, to those who had secured social influence, demonstrated maturity, Jesus holds up the law. Take a look here. Look into this mirror. How do you match up? He's hoping they would see themselves as they truly are, were. The truth is, remember, no one's good except God. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. That's number seven, right? He quotes the top ten. You should not commit adultery, number seven. You should not murder, number six. You should not steal, number eight. You should not give false testimony, number nine. Honor your mom and dad, number five. Don't miss the significance of this man's claim. Remember, Jesus said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
We enter the kingdom of God like children. Yet the man said, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I've cleared the hurdle. I've got it done. I'm good to go. I've achieved. In other words, I'm no longer a child. I have grown up. I've done what's expected of me. There was a status under the law. So, in other words, is this man arrogant? Is he uh, self-deceived? It's interesting. There was a status under the law described as faultless or blameless. So this man is, in saying, I've kept all these since I was a boy, and he means most likely since the age of accountability, since I was accountable for my actions. He says, I've done all these things. The He's saying he's faultless. He's saying he's blameless before the law. The Apostle Paul said the same thing about himself. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. To be faultless or blameless before the law was not a claim of moral perfection. In other words, when he says, I've kept all these since I was a little boy, he's not actually self-deceived and he's not actually arrogant. He's reporting that in so much as the law requires X, I've done it. So when I've sinned, I've offered the appropriate sacrifices. I've done all that the law requires. In other words, this man is claiming to, to be worthy under um, the direction of the law or the expectations of the law. In short, good enough to enter heaven and he apparently wants Jesus to assuage his lingering doubts, right? He's on his knees. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus holds up the law. He said, all that I've done since I was a little boy. Jesus next responds. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, his hallelujah was stolen. <laughs> when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. It's interesting to note that in Mark's account of this very same story, again, back to Mark chapter 10, we're told that Jesus loved this man. Here are Mark's words. Jesus looked at him and loved him. All this I've done since I was a little boy. I've kept five, six, seven, eight, and nine. I've kept the law, I'm blameless, I'm faultless before the law. Jesus looked at him and felt love for him, loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. I raise Jesus' love for this man because when you're interpreting and applying scripture, when we're making our way through God's word, we always want to be careful not to read between the lines. You want to focus on reading the lines themselves as best you can, especially when it comes to what people may be feeling or thinking in the biblical narrative. So for me, learning something about what Jesus is actually feeling towards this guy, I love it. It's helpful in the interpretive effort. In this case, I find it very encouraging to find he actually feels love for this guy. He's not irritated by the guy. He doesn't resent the guy's claim to have kept all the law since he was a little boy. 
We know Jesus often lashed out at those who were religious. As this man is, he's on his knees, he's kept the law, he's blameless. Jesus lashed out at those that were religious and arrogant, which this man was not. Religious, yes. Arrogant, no. And he feels love for him. This man is religious and humble. Jesus loved him. And because Jesus loves him and wants him certainly to receive eternal life, he challenges him. One thing you lack, one thing's remaining. Something Jesus raises that Jesus knew was in the way. It was stealing his hallelujah. It was stealing his praise for God. It's interesting for, to note, I think of all the relationships that we have, we have relationships right, with peers, colleagues, relatives, spouses, children. Jesus has this relationship with this man, albeit short-lived, I'm assuming, or a newer relationship, but he feels love for him. And when he feels love for him, he doesn't back off the hard word. No, he steps into a very challenging word for this man. He's very direct with him. One thing you lack. And he candidly invites him to address that one thing hindering him from receiving eternal life. Receiving, not meriting. His wealth. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. It appears that this man's sadness was directly proportional to his wealth. He was very sad because he was very wealthy. One thing was hindering him from following Jesus, which meant one thing was keeping him from eternal life. Jesus felt love for this man, but this man felt love for his money. Jesus felt love for this man, but this man felt sad <laughs> that he'd have to give it up. And he walked away. It's fascinating because we all have, we all have relationships with people that we're afraid may walk away from the faith. I'm assuming. I have them. We don't want people to walk away from the faith. Sometimes when we don't want people to walk away with faith, we, we hold back on saying the hard words, right? Jesus delivers a very difficult word, made this man really sad. We don't want to make people really sad because they, we don't want them to say, well, to heck with Jesus then. I mean, if that's who you, what you think it means to follow Jesus, then that makes me sad. I don't want to be sad, so... We either don't say the hard thing to say, or when we sense that they say, and they walk away, we run after them. Oh, well, you didn't understand me, or let me nuance that. This man walks away, and Jesus watches him walk away. It's not that Jesus didn't love him. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? If it's harder 
for a camel to go, for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Who's going to get into heaven? How's this going to happen? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, <laughs> uh, Peter, you should know all that we've given up for you, right? I mean, you're aware of all that we've, we've, we've given up. We've left all we had to follow you. you. You'll get us through the eye of the needle, won't you? <laughs> Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Do you know that some people have more to overcome spiritually than others? Do you know it's, it's harder for some to get into the kingdom of God than others? I mean, if we're taking Jesus' teachings at, just at face value, verse 17 of chapter 18, you've got to be a child. then those who are of childlike attributes, it's going to be a little easier for God to draw them, work in their lives. They're still not, their childlikeness doesn't merit heaven. It just means it's easier for God to draw them. I actually think, and my father's passed away, I actually think his intellect got in the way of his being drawn to Christ. He died at the age of 66. He came to Christ six, nine months before he died. In God's severe mercy, my father was humbled in his intellect. He went you know, from a highly credentialed, highly competent trial attorney to he regressed mentally and at or about, as I would ascertain it, the age of 12, as he regressed, he received Christ as Savior, and then he passed away. Do you know it's, it's easier for God to draw some? Another way you could say it is, some resist God less than others. Money makes it really hard. According to Jesus, it's harder for rich folks to enter than poor folks. Not impossible for rich folks, just harder. In fact, it's so hard for rich folks to get into heaven that he described it as easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle, something that only God can do. God alone will separate rich people from their money. Only God can separate rich people from their money. It's a supernatural resurrection miracle to get people to part with their money. Push back if you think I'm overstating it. I don't know what else to do with this. I could speak from, from personal experience. Only God separates me from my money. Why is it so hard for rich folks to get into heaven? Because we're tempted to cling to our money. We're tempted we're tempted to act like adults. Uh, you know, when, when kids get 
you know, when they're little, you try to teach kids, or we try to teach, many Christians try to teach their kids uh, giving, saving, uh, and spending habits. So we got the little banks, and we taught our kids giving habits, saving habits, spending habits. And kids will follow you in that. Okay, well, you know, I'll give 50% away, and I'll save 50% and spend nothing. I mean, kids will follow you there. But when we grow up, we have real designs on our hard-earned cash, don't we? We have opinions about where it should go and how it should be used. It's hard for rich folks to get into the kingdom of heaven because we don't want to be childlike in our dependence, allowing God to provide for us. Of course, the good news is that with God, all things are possible, even separating wealthy people from their money. Now, I'm keenly aware that churches get a bad rap for being focused on money. Hey, the good news is, as this Sunday morning, uh, our church is debt-free, we have lots of cash in the bank, and we're up to our budget. That's good news, right? That's praise God. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't looking for applause. My point here is there's no arm twisting that I'm trying to do. We're not even in the middle of a capital campaign. This is the beauty of making your way through the gospel, right? You just take the next couple verses and it's wealthy people have significant barriers to getting into the kingdom of God. That, those are the next verses. So churches I know get a bad rap in talking about money, my father used to make jokes about churches and you know, where the offering plate was going. In fact, one of three big barriers to me becoming a pastor was I didn't want to pay my bills based on what people dropped in the offering plate. It was a huge point of arrogance on my part. In fact, we know that many people will leave churches both believers and non-believers alike, they, they, they'll leave churches if there's too much said about money. Ah, that church puts too much emphasis on money. I wonder if a church can put too much emphasis on money after reading this. Inevitably, I, I've heard questions like, shouldn't a, shouldn't a church be teaching more, on more spiritual things? Issues of faith and forgiveness and love. Sometimes it's said like this, shouldn't the church focus on what really matters, things of eternity? Not get, up, get caught up in the petty financial issues of the day. Have more of an eternal focus. Well, after reading this, I, I'm not sure if there's something more eternal than how I'm handling my money of eternal consequence. According to Jesus, how we handle our wealth is, is an eternal issue. Remember, Jesus loved this man. He didn't hate him. He wasn't irritated by him. He felt compassion on him and pointed out something that was getting in his way. The question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must love me more than money. You must depend upon me in a childlike fashion and let me care for you. You must stop adulting, thinking that you're providing for yourself, and watch me provide for you. You must depend on me rather than yourself. 
Here's my question for us. Could it be that much like this ruler, sermons on giving make us sad because our wealth competes with our knowing Jesus' love for us and receiving eternal life. He was very sad because he was very wealthy. And I'm not saying churches handle money well. (laughs) I'm not saying that. I'm saying actually the churches need to be addressing this really well. We we need to, to handle this issue well. It could be that Americans or Americans don't like to hear sermons on money because we are very wealthy. And the point of fact is, I think it's an easy argument to be made that the American church is the wealthiest church in the history of the world. One Catholic, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but it's one Catholic um, mystic said that America is being crushed, you know, carry your cross, that's the call, being crushed under the weight of a golden cross. Talking about the burden that our money actually is. The competition that money presents for our souls. So what do we do? Let's do application. First application point, ask Jesus to help you trust his love for you so that nothing he asks you to give up makes you sad. He was very sad because he was very wealthy. God may call you to any number of childlike dependencies. This guy's just happened to be money. He was all about adulting, meaning managing his money, paying his bills, good thing, right? But let's not limit this to money alone. The Lord may call us to depend upon him in a childlike fashion in any number of areas. I think about our uh, sexuality. The Lord may call you to live unmarried and celibate. He may call you to be a missionary, move away from your family. He may call you to give all you have to the poor, like he called this man. Make no mistake, the Holy Spirit's going to pinpoint any obstacle that there is to you inheriting eternal life, to following after Jesus, to depending upon him rather than upon yourself. The Holy Spirit's going to highlight that. He's going to call you to forsake it, give it up. For this man, it was money. And here's the good news. Don't miss the close to this teaching. It's very reassuring. It's very comforting. It's verse uh, 29. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. There isn't a net loss here for the ruler. You know, the world tells us, you give a dollar away, you're a dollar poor. That's not the reality biblically. 
But the world tells us that act on your sexuality, be you, you do you. And the Lord has very specific calling on our lives regarding sexual ethics. And the good news is, as we're childlike, and we, we move into what the Lord's calling us to do, we, we don't let his calling on us make us sad. We take that, what he describes as an easy yoke and a light burden, and we learn from the person who's gentle and humble in heart, this is how Jesus describes himself, then we will not fail, verse 29, will not fail to receive much more than we could ask or even imagine, Ephesians 3.20, in this life and in the life to come. So ask Jesus to help you trust his love for you so that nothing he asks you to give up makes you sad. Now, does living celibate, if the Lord calls you to that, or leaving your family to be a missionary, or giving all that you have to the poor, does that merit eternal life? Is that our takeaway? No, no. If it were that simple, right, Christians would be the poorest people in the world. If all it took was you write a check for all your possessions, you give it away, and you get to go to heaven, it'd be... Following Jesus isn't, isn't formulaic in this response. This was this man's issue. But he's not that unique. We all have issues where the Lord's calling us to say no to something, and it's making us really sad. And we need to be confident that he loves us, and we need to be childlike in our response, and trust our Heavenly Father, trust our parent. You see, the, our Heavenly Parent, our Father. Hmm. We have to see Jesus is good, why do you call me good? Do you see me as God? If you do, if we do see him as God, we'll, it'll not make us sad what he calls us to give up. Secondly, I, I want to make a, a money application because the focal point here is money. Uh, take your next step in giving. So often when we get biblical teaching, we end up, you know, kicking ourselves or feeling kicked by where we're at in this, in this respect with money. And so if you go to our, our website under the resources tab, there are some drop downs and there's a link there about giving. All this is spelled out there. This is, Paul writes that we should grow in the grace of giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. He says, just as you excel in everything, excel in the grace of giving. We're to be excellent givers. In fact, Glowing Bible Church has grown in this respect immensely over the last five years. Terrific growth as far as giving. And I would just challenge you this morning, take the next step. If, if you're not giving uh, to the mission of God, then give initially. That's your starting point. Give once. If, if you have given initially, grow, begin to give consistently. Give every month or give every week, however you want to do it. Right? Become a consistent giver. If you are a consistent giver, let me, and many of us are, let me, let me encourage us to begin giving proportionally. 
That would mean uh, wealthy people are giving more than those with less, less wealth. Uh, the data on evangelical giving is actually the more wealthy we are, the less we give. Uh, that's, that's not biblically uh, what we read, right? We're to excel as givers. We're to grow as givers. Just as we excel in everything else, Paul says, be excellent at this. So we need to begin giving proportionally. And so as our wealth increases, we're going to increase our giving. Next, sacrificially. We, you know, God, I, I've often said, forgive me if you've sat through these sermons before, God's not m- primarily interested in us putting additions on our houses or driving newer cars. He's not. He's not primarily interested in us taking longer, more lavish vacations. God is primarily interested in the least and the lost coming closer to him. Those without as much, the least, being resourced in seeing a tangible demonstration of resurrection power, right? Only the supernatural power of God separates wealthy people from their money. So when we give our money and resources to the under-resourced, and we do so in the name of Jesus, then we're giving a tangible demonstration of the power of God. So, and then we're sharing the gospel, giving a verbal witness. So sacrificial giving, that means saying no to vacation, expenses, uh, uh, additions on your home. It means lowering, sacrifice means lowering your standard of living so that more people can hear and see the gospel lived out. Finally, generous, generosity. It's a pet peeve of mine when, someone, when I give somebody you know, a tip or something or, or I give some money and they say, that's very generous of you. And I want to say, you have no idea how much money is in my bank account. You don't know if this is generous or not. Generosity is defined not by how much we give, but by how much is left after we give. And we're called to be generous in our giving. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your goodness to us as a people. I ask that nothing you call us to give up will make us sad. I pray that we would be childlike, deeply convinced that you're loving. In Jesus' name, amen.